Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 225. We're a quarter of a way to 300, and that's exciting. This conversation is with Megan Ackerman, otherwise known as Bunny Lane of Bunny Lane Taxidermy. So as you could guess, Megan is a taxidermist, and she's an artist. Now, rather than traditional taxidermy, I'll give you a scenario for that. So if somebody has a pet uh, or somebody goes hunting really and kills an animal and wants it, wants the head on their wall, wants the animal preserved as like a, a trophy animal, or again, if it's a pet as a remembrance to that animal, that would be traditional taxidermy. What she does is she takes animals through ethical taxidermy, so animals that have not been killed for sport, and she turns them into incredible art creations. I could try to describe them for you, but it probably wouldn't do it a whole lot of justice. So I think you should go and check it out. So go to her Instagram account. It's the best way to see her work. There will be a link for that directly in the show notes, as always. So just go to whatever player you know, you're listening to, and you'll find a hyperlink right to her Instagram. Really creative, innovative, cool stuff. And Megan, to me, is the perfect guest guest in that she's an onion of sorts, right? I come to the conversation knowing some things about her and like layer after layer gets peeled away, revealing story after story that I hadn't even anticipated. Her life could be a book, could be a memoir, it could be a movie. Like it is so fascinating. So I was so glad that I got to have this conversation with her to learn about her and to share her story on this platform. So Voyagers, give her some love, follow her on social media. If you're interested in her work, give her a holler, buy something, support artists. She's a, she's a really fascinating one. Also in the show notes for this episode, as always, you will find a link to my Patreon account. It is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. And you get some cool kickbacks like stickers and shirts and stuff from around the world. I just went through a box yesterday in uh, my, my closet, actually. And there's like all these stickers from different guests and people that I've met um, from like Legacies of War to the Billion Oyster Project. So uh, I'll throw some of that stuff in. Sometimes I throw in like uh, money from around the world and stuff like that because I think that kind of stuff is cool. So if you're able to support that way, awesome. If not, a like, a follow, a review, subscribing, all that stuff helps. All right, Voyagers, enjoy this conversation with Megan, a.k.a. Bunny Lane. Cool. Uh, well, thank you for doing this. I'm excited to get to talk to you um, in, what is this, 225 episodes. I've covered all sorts of topics. I've never had somebody on to talk about taxidermy or, you know, taxidermy as the medium for their artwork. So uh, I'm fascinated. So thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe... Two weeks ago, I was out in New Jersey and I recorded at Ricky's house. And afterwards, he posted about a show in Brooklyn that I think had some of your work at it. And I was chatting back and forth with him and he was like, oh, yeah, do you remember that squirrel <laughs> in my science room? That's like it's wearing a tutu. Uh, it looks like it's doing ballet. He's like, that's Megan. So, um it's cool that you have that connection. How, how do you know Ricky? I did a festival. It's a somewhat fine art festival called Kentuck, but it's also a lot of folk artists. And I kind of fall in between those two categories. And Ricky was vending. We had a mutual friend that introduced us there at the show. And instantly his energy just, I mean, it was one of those things where I, I just wanted to hug him upon meeting him. And um, we've exchanged art over the years. We, we do a lot of art trades, which is fabulous for me because 
he not only has really great ideas of, of what it is he wants me to create, he's made me some really fabulous custom pieces of jewelry. And um, check his workout. It's Ricky Boscarino. He's amazing. Uh, you grew up in Illinois, is that correct? Yes. I grew up in a small town called Kasner until I was seven. I believe the town had about 12 people. No. The only business there was a junkyard. And it was right on the highway. And they changed tires and had all these fabulous old cars. And as a child, I would sneak over there and bring my toys and like camp out in some of the like 1950s cars. Whoa. And I think just growing up in that rural environment surrounded by, you know, farm animals and, and, you know, stray cats and just, it really gave me an appreciation for just animals. Like I felt like they were my friends because there were no kids my age. So I was like, Oh, my cats, I'm taking my cats with me and we're going to go to the junkyard today and buy a soda and then camp out in the trunk of this car and play Barbies and cats. <laughs> wow. So I think that's kind of like, the earliest inspiration for my artwork because I used to dress my cats up and my dogs up and they were like my first playmates. <laughs> Did you ever have aspirations of like, Oh, I'm going to move and live in a big city someday. And like, did you ever do that? No. Um, I did go to school for a short time in Hong Kong in 94 and Whoa. 95. I lived in Tun Moon and I went to school in Kowloon Bay. Wow. Yeah, it was, I went to KG5, King George V. Um, it, was, it was a good experience. It was fun. I love cities. I've lived in New Orleans um, off and on for 12 years. But um, I, I bought this place four years ago, and I, I really, I love the country life, and I love that I don't have a lot of distractions here, like no one's showing up with a bottle of wine, like, hey, I'm going to come sit on the porch with you, and let's cook, or, you know, there's this show in town, and let's go see this opening. Like I need, I need quiet mm. and I need to like get back to my childhood self to create and being out here by myself is the best medicine ever. <laughs> How did you pick Hong Kong? That's, that's quite a ways from Illinois. It is. So my stepfather was a computer engineer and he had a program for the early um, form of cogeneration. And he traveled around the U.S. and then he got a job um, for China Light and Power through GE. And they were like, well, we can't fly you home twice a month. So you're going to have to pack up the family and move to Hong Kong. And as a 14-year-old, I was horrified. I was like, we're moving where? <laughs> <laughs> you know, excuse me? You want me to leave my established friend group and everything? You know, I'm just beginning to gain independence. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to Hong Kong and you're going to have to learn to navigate in a country where you don't even speak the language. It was, it was really interesting and it really, I learned a lot there and I'm so appreciative for my time there. I, I wouldn't want to live in Hong Kong, but um, I would love to go visit. Wow. <laughs> and I do love big city life, but not every day. So Two then, weeks a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you were a kid... Um, were you getting involved in artistic mediums that, and I don't, I don't mean, I don't say this with like any condescension, but like something more traditional, like fine arts, like, like drawing or painting. So my father was an artist. Um, he was a dog groomer and a tattooist. And from a very early age, I mean, he had me working with charcoals. He would, he would cut wood. I remember one time he cut this piece of wood and it looked just like a, like a watermelon slice. And it's one of my earliest memories of making art. And we painted it to look like a watermelon. And I actually have that watermelon that I painted with him. And I use it as a doorstop for my, for my back doors oh, when I let the dogs wow. out. So, I mean, I was always constantly making art. My father, he pushed me to explore my creative side. You know, I decided I wanted to work with clay or I wanted to, you know, try painting, which I'm horrible at. I wish I was better. But um, no, he, he was always very, very supportive. And he still, uh, to this day, does about two paintings a week, even though he's retired. Wow. Now, I, I'm going to use traditional a couple times here. And again, maybe that might sound condescending. I don't mean it that way. I just sort of mean sort of like the, 
you know, the sort of preordained mainstream type of a lifestyle that people live. So when I say you're doing something non-traditional, I actually say it with a, a, a twinge of jealousy and a whole lot of respect. But did you work a sort of, you know, like traditional career trajectory at any point? Uh, you're one of the lucky ones. So when, I, when I first graduated from high school, I worked at a trucking company and I did the log audit. So like the guys would bring me in their logbook of like where they'd been and what they'd been up to. Like, oh, you know, stopped for gas here, drove 400 miles and put some retread tires on and, <laughs> um, you know, finished the load. But like they would lie. Like it was all lies and like it was hard to read. So I had, I did that for like two years and um, that was different. My boss was really sweet. He was really, really sweet, but um, it was, it was funny. It was, it was funny me trying to fit into that world. Cause I mean, I worked for my father as a body piercer in my, in my teens. And um, yeah, I started when I was 14 and I, I helped him out in the shop till I was about 22 when I moved to New Orleans. But after that, um, I became a performing artist of a somewhat risque nature on Bourbon Street, which was super fun. And um, I did that off and on. And the whole time I was kind of experimenting with different mediums and kind of trying to decide what it was I really, really wanted to do, what direction I wanted to move in, what medium spoke to me. I did a lot of traveling in my 20s. But um, I didn't really discover what my medium was until I, I was in hair school. I tried hair school, which was awful. Beauty school. I dropped out. <laughs> um, I went to a friend's house and he had these videos on taxidermy. And they hadn't been opened. And he was like, let's watch a movie. And I'm like, okay. So we're going through his movies. I'm like, I want to watch this. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I want to watch this. He's like, um, how to skin and mount a squirrel. I'm like, <laughs> yep, I want to watch it. So we watched the video. I was fascinated. And um, I've always loved animals. And sculpture has always been one of my stronger points in my artistic journey. So I was like, okay, I think I could do this. And I, as soon as she started skinning the squirrel, I was like, oh, my gosh, I know exactly what that squirrel needs to do. And it wasn't anything near what she, she had, like, you know, squirrel, like, running up a tree turning to the right. And I was like, nope, nope, he needs other things. And I just kind of became obsessed with taxidermy. And one day I got my hands on a roadkill squirrel and I went to town. I remembered the video and I just, I did my best. And I was pretty proud of it. Okay. You have to let me unpack some of this because you just dropped so many fascinating gems in like... <laughs> In one story. Okay, so before, I guess, even technically you were legally legally allowed to get a piercing, you were piercing people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, my father's wild. I mean, I was piercing, like, their private parts. I was PPP certified at 15 years old. I don't even know if that's legal. <laughs> but this was back in, like, 1995. So when I came back from Hong Kong, my father had um, the tattoo shop up and running and piercing was like the cool thing. And um, he had a body piercer, but some days he was busy. So I expressed an interest in wanting to learn how to pierce. So he, he trained me and I worked for him on the weekends and it was, it was great money and I really enjoyed it. Have you ever considered writing a memoir? It's funny you say that because I have journaled for years and I keep them in like a, a suitcase under my guest room bed and all my friends, like they've read them and they're like, oh my God, this is so crazy. Like you need to, um, you, you need to document this. And I'm like, I don't know. That would, that would take a lot of therapy for me to like go through and have to like, you know, edit and rewrite and like, this is significant. This is not significant. But, um, if somebody else would just like take my, like somebody please come steal all those books under my, my guest bed and do something with them. That'd be great. Yeah. And I, just, and I, the reason I ask is this, this already is incredibly fascinating to me. 
you you mentioned doing some traveling. I think you said in in your twenties. Uh, where did you end up? I just pretty much traveled around America. So I bought a '57 Cadillac from my uncle David, and I've always been obsessed with old cars. You know, growing up next to a junkyard, stealing hubcaps as a kid. <laughs> you know, having to return my mom's like you have to return that to the junkyard. I'm like, please, mom, it's so pretty. <laughs> but, um, so I've loved old cars. I bought this old car and uh, being a dancer, it was really cool. Like, first of all, you didn't have to work much. And second of all, you could pretty much work anywhere. So I basically was like, have, have G-string will travel. So I'd be like, I think I want to head towards Florida for a while. So I would, you know, just get in my car and drive. And my uncle had rebuilt the car like two years prior to me buying it. So she was, she was like almost like, not like driving a new car, but I mean, she had like zero miles on the engine. She didn't leak fluid. She'd been freshly painted, new upholstery. So it was, it was really comfortable. And it was was fun. And I I mean, I just traveled all over. Like I want to go to Kansas. I want to go to Texas. I want to go, you know, back home to Illinois and see some friends and family. It was wild. All solo? Yeah. Wow. Well, I had my cat with me, Althea. <laughs> so she traveled with me. I know she's, she's still here, actually. She's been, oh, she's been awful lately. So I, I don't like shaving her, but her dreadlocks are so terrible. She's a Persian cat. And, um... She's just not happy with me. She's, yeah, she's a mess right now, but she's 17. Yeah, and she's grumpy. It's a whole thing. Yeah. But I've had her, you know, 17 years and, uh, yeah, she traveled with me. My mom had um, just passed away when I got the car and then I got the cat and I wasn't happy with my living situation. And I just kind of like, I don't know, I've had like a kind of a break, but, um, I just got in my car with my clothes and my cat and just hit the road. And I did that for like five years. It was, it was really therapeutic and I really got to kind of know myself and figure out like, okay, these are things that I want in my life. And these are goals that I want to achieve. And I think before that I hadn't ever really considered where I was going. I was just like, okay, like let's make it through this week. So it was great for me. Were you, were you like dancing along the way? Like, how were you, how were you sustaining oh, yeah. yourself? Oh. oh yeah. I would just show up to a club and just be like, Hey, do you guys need girls? Like I'm in town for a week and, um, I would love to, to work. And I'd also, I'd studied ballet in my youth and done some like teaching for my ballet teacher. So I was actually like a good performer and a, you know, a good dancer. I wasn't just like a quote unquote exotic entertainer. Like I actually like put on a show. And I'd be like, I'll audition for you. And they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, stay as long as you like. And then often I would, I would go back and, and like make the circuit of places that I'd had good experiences in, you know, earlier times. And I would just go visit those same clubs. I could call me like, hey, Jimmy, um, you know, this is Megan. I'd like to come, you know, work a week. Like, are you, are you fine with that? And he'd be like, yeah, come on. You can come anytime you want. I'm like, thank you. Wow. So it was it was really freeing. I mean, I was, I was working and, you know, making art. I always had like a little toolbox full of what I call mini mediums, you know, things that you can do in a hotel room that don't make too much of a mess. So. Wow. This is fascinating. Like you have to write a book. <laughs> like I could see a movie about this. My life this. really has been crazy. But I mean, my father told me, he said, you can do anything you want to. The only person stopping you is you. I mean, obviously we all have physical and mental restrictions that, you know, I'm, an, I'm not, I don't think I'll be a rocket scientist or a jockey, but um, you can do anything you want to do. So I did. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'm romanticizing it a bit uh, because, and I get this a bit too, when people are like, oh, you're so lucky to have been able to spend all that time traveling to that place or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but like you didn't see the 48 hours in the Philippines when I was like deathly ill, puking and shitting at the same time. And like, there's a lot of hard stuff that goes with it. So I, I would imagine there were tough times as well, but I don't know. Some of that makes for fascinating stories years later. Um, yes. 
Yeah. Yes. I miss turning heads driving that 57 Cadillac with rollers on my hair <laughs> late to a gig with the cat, like sleeping. She loved to sleep in like the back window. And on that model car, the 57 Cadillac, like it's the way the window slanted. It's like perfect. She would just like curl up in it because it's like a curved piece of glass. She would just curl up in it and sleep. But I, I, I do miss those days. Wow. I miss that freedom. But I also love my farm and I love the consistency I have. I think that I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for my crazy 20s. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about taxidermy again and there's a, a really big difference between liking animals, even like consuming animals, and then having the, I guess, fortitude maybe is the word, to be able to essentially like skin and disembowel an animal. Um, are, were, oh, at, no. at, at any point, were you squeamish about doing this? Well, it was very intimidating at first. And if you're careful with your, with your scalpel, you don't really puncture anything. So you're just taking the upper layer of the skin off. So the skin has multiple layers. And what I'm doing is I'm separating the, the hide, the, the skin part, the fascia is the part in between. So I'm separating the skin through the fascia, like with the muscle tissue. So like the, the layer between the muscles and the actual skin is fascia. It's white. And um, when you make your first incision, you kind of peel the skin back and you can see the fascia and you just make little incisions and then pull. And um, if you're careful, it, it usually isn't a messy job. Like there's no blood or guts. I mean, believe me, I have opened some cavities on accident before, you know, pressing too hard. But really, I'm just taking their clothes off and then I clean them and preserve them and then put them onto another form that is hopefully honoring, you know, their their life and their passing and celebrating their new life that they're about to have as a mythical or magical or whimsical creature. <laughs> and then, so do the, the insides, let's talk about like, I guess the process, do the insides then get, they get stuffed with like a mold of the animal? Uh, so I make my own molds, but I also use commercial molds. I prefer to make my own or modify commercial molds. That way it's not just a traditional taxidermy pose. Cause I just can't stand that. I can't, I can't do a traditional pose. I want squirrels lying on, you know, chaise lounges and performing ballet. I want two squirrels in a pas de deux or swing dancing. Or um, I'm working on an otter. I'm working on a, um, an otter, an opossum right now, and he's going to be an opossum because I'm really corny. Dad jokes. I love puns. So he's going to be the opossum, the opossum of taxidermy. Wow. So. But no, um, I make my own, they're like styrofoam forms and uh, you can carve them and they're really easy to manipulate so that the rest of the animal, because I, I do ethical taxidermy, I don't use anything that's hunted. So it's like, I get them from farms around me. I get them from people who raise animals for food. So I do a lot of rabbits. I have a rabbit farmer that lives down the street from me, which is really convenient being that I'm obsessed with jackalopes. I'm going to come back to that. Um, so let okay. me, let me put a, a, put a pin in the jackalope. Um, the parts that you don't need. So I guess the guts for lack of a better term. Uh, yeah. I, I think I read that those end up as food for your turtles. They do. They do. My turtles, I have, so I have like a half acre pond and sometimes I, like when I go to feed them, I'll count 16 turtles. Whoa. They just swim up to me. Like I'll, like, like I'll walk up to the edge of the pond and I'll have like, you know, scraps from like a salad and like a piece of wheat toast that I only ate like, you know, a fourth of. 
and a squirrel carcass. <laughs> and I just start throwing things in the pond and all the turtles come up. They're like, oh, hey, mom. Hey, oh, cool. You brought us some food. We'll stop eating all your fish. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. And then um, larger animals, I try to like take the, the meat off of them and feed that to the turtles. And I put them in the bone pile, which is just like, um, it's like a grate with wood in between it with a grate on top with a cinder block on top and things are allowed there to like naturally decay. Hmm. And then all of the bones I donate to my friends who make art and make jewelry. That way every part of the animal is used and honored. Wow. Um, I'm going to come back to some of those things too. This is fascinating to me. So um, do you have to, I've been under the impression with stuff like this, like you have to insert fake eyes, right? Because the eyes will kind of decay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't actually use any part. I mean, you can use the skull and some taxidermists do that. I do that for birds only, but I don't mount a lot of birds. They're not my favorite. I like furries. But um, so it's basically a, a styrofoam mold that looks just like I made this one. Oh, wow. It looks just like a rabbit. And then I'll put clay where their eye would be. And then I use uh, glass eyes. Okay. And then you cover the form with hide paste. And then you stretch the form over. Um, I'm sorry, you stretch the hide over the form and pin everything in place and it dries in about a week. And then you can do fun things like put clothes and hats and fun backgrounds with them. But yeah, they're just like styrofoam molds. Does the hide- You're not actually using anything like, so if you're imagining like, say I'm imagining a bobcat, uh, the cartilage in the ears stays and the, the claws will stay. But um, it's, I just use the skin. So everything else, all the byproducts, I, I have to find uses for, but I've, I've been able to do that with my turtles and my bone pile and my art making friends. So. Does, does the hide get like formaldehyde? Like how does the hide stay uh, preserved? I use borax. Okay. Or if it's a larger animal, I will take it to my, uh, my tanner. And he'll do either a wet or dry tan. And I'm not sure what he does, but he's magical. And that's just something I've never really wanted to explore. I've been to a tannery multiple times and it's just, it's not something I'm interested in. But I have great friends who are really good at it. So I don't have to. Now, you mentioned Bobcat and... Um... I, I don't know about Mississippi, but I know in Louisiana, there are like nutria, which are kind of giant rodent looking things. Um, so you, you're, you're working with some, some animals that are, like clearly are native to the region, but you know, for people in New York city, those, those sound pretty fantastic. You've, you've worked with the nutria before, huh? I have. I actually uh, sold the nutria to a really, really great lady in Brooklyn. And it was a piece and it was kind of, um, it was a baby nutria and he's playing video games and he has snacks all around him. And the piece is entitled Shelter in Place. And it was just kind of like a portrait of what we're all doing during the early stages of COVID. Wow. And it's, it's owned by a, a fabulous woman in, in Brooklyn. But that was a baby Nutra. He was so cute. He was like six inches tall. And I had his brother as well. He, um, he, he was part of a rescue. My friend runs. And the babies, which is, often happens, I guess, with wildlife, you know, when they're a certain age and they lose their mother, they don't always make it. But the, the rehabbers, they do their best. But then instead of throwing them into the trash, they're like, hey, I know this crazy girl who runs Bunny Lane Taxidermy, and she would be happy for our donation. So I bring them to, to my, my farm, and I give them a new life. Wow. There's actually, so I live in Williamsburg. If you're familiar with the area at all, like just north of here, you know, I could walk in 20-ish minutes and get to Greenpoint, 
Um, there's a taxidermist in Greenpoint uh, who I think is pretty well known for the area. Is is there much of a either national or like international community? Like, is there a way for you all to sort of like share ideas and get together? There is in the traditional taxidermy world. Uh-huh. I'm a member of the Mississippi Taxidermy Association and I go to their yearly meet. I'm the weird girl. They don't <laughs> understand me, but I'm amusing and mildly entertaining to them. So they tolerate me. <laughs> they also always give me things out of their freezers that they're not going to use. Like somebody brought me this ugly possum. Do you want it? And I say, of course. So um, we also have national meets, but as far as, I don't want to use the term rogue taxidermy. I'm just going to say artistic taxidermy and oddity type work. I've not found any sort of um, meet or, you know, gathering to meet with like-minded individuals. So when you say traditional, am I correct in thinking that somebody who has a cat as a pet that they have a great love for and would like to preserve past its death would go to a taxidermist, have that cat preserved, and now you can keep it forever on whatever, the mantelpiece. <laughs> was a mantle? I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Or um, I think the most common animal mounted in America would be the white-tailed deer. Because of hunters. So hunters. Traditional taxidermists usually do pieces for hunters. So squirrels, a lot of deer raccoon, wild boar, things of that nature in traditional poses as they would look in their true life. Like they're not going to mount a bird with, you know, a costume on performing a cabaret act. That's, that's what I do. (laughs) So where does that come from? Because when I see your work, to me, it's almost like whimsical. It makes me think of like children's books in a way where there are like these anthropomorphic characters that are, they're, they're animals, but they're doing human things, right? And that is what I'm seeing in your work. Does that come from like stories from your childhood? I think it comes from stories I was creating in my mind as a child. Like I said, growing up in the middle of nowhere, I didn't have a lot of playmates, but there were lots of animals around. Hmm. And I'm so sorry, all my past pets, I would dress them up. (laughs) I would, you know, I had this wagon. I would put my cats in doll dresses in. And it was like, there was like a rope across it. So I could hook their collar so they couldn't jump out of the wagon. Why my parents didn't see this as alarming and stop me, I have no idea. I guess they were busy living their own lives. But I mean, I would play with my animals and dress them up and we would have fashion shows. And I think that's where it comes from. I think that my artwork is just living my best five-year-old life. Wow. So where does the ethical part of it come in for you? And like, why have you made the conscious choice to pursue animals that haven't been like hunted for sport? I understand that hunting has a place and that We need to, like, thin out particular animals, particularly white-tailed deer. But I think that if something is to die, it needs to be used. Like the Native Americans, they were very respectful in how they would, you know, procure their food. And I think that all animals deserve that respect. And I don't want someone to just go out and start, you know, shooting raccoons and then just throwing them away. I think that they need to be honored. Their spirit is, is very important, just like a person or Hmm. your pet, just because it's a wild animal doesn't mean it doesn't reserve respect in life and in death. Hmm. What was the first animal that you worked with? The squirrel. I worked with a squirrel that had the shortest, ugliest tail I've ever seen. But I mounted it. To me, it was beautiful, and I still have it, and it is not beautiful, but to me it is. Is it um, – and sorry if some of these seem basic, but this is also new to me. Um, is it – can you work – let's say somebody brings you 
I don't know, a crocodile. Like, could you, would you know what to do with that? Like, let's say somebody brings you an animal for the first time that you haven't worked with. Is it the same general idea and method? It is and it is not. So most mammals, things with fur, it's the same process. Birds, they have their own process. Fish, different process. You've done fish. But I have a wonderful mentor. I have a wonderful mentor, David Elsey. He's actually a world-famous um, taxidermist who has a whole line of um, squirrel styrofoam forms that he sells worldwide. And I met him by bringing my first squirrel that I mounted into his shop, having no idea. He was the closest taxidermist to me. And I, I showed up in a shop with pecan pie and my ugly ratchet squirrel and was like, hi, my name's Megan. I'm a sculptor and somewhat of an artist, and I really am interested in doing taxidermy. Can you give me any tips or kind of guide me or just give me some ideas? And he said, sit down. So I did. And I never worked for him, but I was always allowed to come pop in the studio. So I'd spend about four hours a month over there asking him questions and working with him. And we've continued that relationship over the nine years that I've been practicing taxidermy. He's fabulous. I can call him and say, oh, I have this coming in. I don't know what to do. He'll say, bring it over. I'm free tomorrow. Or, or let me clear my schedule and we'll work on it next Saturday. Uh, all right. I mean, he gave me a career. He's, he's an amazing, amazing human being. I, w- I wouldn't be where I'm at without him. And I think it was, I think it was a pecan pie that did it. <laughs> all right. I hope you don't get upset at this, but let's just say hypothetical that at a family barbecue, <laughs> sweet old uncle Al eats his last sausage and has a heart attack and dies. Would you be able to preserve a human? Well, I'd probably call my mortician friend (laughs) and she could help me. My father has a webbed foot and he has it in his will that I'm supposed to, um, preserve it. He wants it to go into some sort of museum. I don't know what kind. I haven't researched it. I don't want to think about him dying. But um, she said, oh, it's real easy. Just give me a call. So send me the, you know, the stuff overnight. It's me. I guess something about this femoral artery. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't know how, but I, I could make it happen. I have resources. I think it would be really difficult for me working on a human. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, just... I guess we'll cross that bridge when it when we when we get there. But um, I'm not saying no. Okay. <laughs> I don't it... even know about the legality of that, actually. Yeah, that's a good question. And and honestly, now like it was it was a kind of a joke. But now that I'm thinking, like historically, it, it, it had to have been done. It must have been done. Mummification right. was one of the first forms of burial. That was how upper class society, you know, members were preserved. I believe, I think earliest, I want to say the Egyptians, but I think that there are civilizations prior to that, but I'm, I'm no history buff. So don't, don't quote me on that, but I, I know it was a popular Egyptian practice. Yeah. So is it, is it safe to say that, uh, you know, that rabbits uh, or or bunnies are your favorite animal to work with? Absolutely. Especially because my neighbor breeds them and he sells the meat and I use the hide. So it's perfect. We're using everything. Yeah, that is awesome. And um, particularly- I did a career out of byproducts. How awesome is that? Something he was throwing away, I made a career out of. 90% of my artwork is jackalopes. All right. So let's talk about that. I will unpin what I pinned before. A jackalope is a mythical creature, right? Like it has not been proven to be a real creature. That is true. Although I think, 
I did a little research before talking to you. I think there are some forms of like rabbits or hares that maybe start to sprout horns. Like I think it's some type of mutation among some of them. But um, where does your fascination with the, the jackalope come in? I've always loved jackalopes. I've always thought, you know, they were these beautiful mythical creatures. And I remember one year for Christmas, someone was receiving one and I had to wrap the package and it came from this uh, taxidermy studio in Wyoming. And I wanted to open the package so badly, but they wouldn't let me because I just wanted to pet the jackalope and I didn't get to. And it, it upset me. And I really think that at an early age, like that kind of stuck with me, like, oh, I want to pet the bunny. I'm going to pet the jackalope. And I've always, I've always loved rabbits and everything looks better with antlers on. <laughs> I saw, um, well, I'll, I'll preface this with a story. I was in, uh, God, where was somewhere in Indonesia and I was staying at like a villa. So like kind of partly outdoors, kind of partly indoors. And I was with someone that I was like trying to woo. And so in the courtship process, I was like trying to act all like manly and cool and brave and a bat had gotten into the villa and was just flying around in the closet and I'm screaming, right? Like I'm from New York city. (laughs) Like This is where I'm from. I'm like, Oh my God, it's going to bite us. We're going to get rabies. I'm just screaming. And she's just like, are you kidding me? Like I grew up on a farm in Indonesia. This is nothing like goes, grabs a broom. She's like, shoo, shoo, shoo. Goodbye bat. And it goes away. And I'm like completely emasculated, feeling embarrassed. I'm just like, Oh my God. Like I'm such a city person. Um, I saw a video of a bat that had flown into your grill and you were, you were just handling it in your hands. Is that bat alive? And can you tell me about that? That bat did not survive. Oh. <laughs> no, it was horrible. It was horrible. I'm sorry. He was doing so well. And then, you know, I wrapped him up. I called my friend who does rehab. She told me, you know, this is what you should do. I did all the proper things. And about two hours later, I went to check on him and he had expired. He was cute. He was terrifying, though. I knew he didn't have rabies because he didn't have any signs of rabies they're they're like you know physical signs like foaming at the mouth aggression and he you know he looked healthy he didn't have the mucus in his eyes and nose was completely clear he was a healthy he was a healthy bat but he was terrifying i was screaming <laughs> like he would be he would be fine and he's like calm and like letting me hold him i'm like trying to examine him for injuries and then all of a sudden he's like opening his mouth and trying to you know, either speak or bite me or communicate. I'm not sure what he was trying to do, but those teeth. Oh, I was, I, I was freaking out. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm sorry they're to so hear. Cute, but they're so terrifying. I'm sorry to hear that he didn't make it or he or she. Um, I know. It, you mentioned before of selling a piece to someone in Brooklyn. And I was wondering if, if there's a cultural component to your work at all. Like if there are places where, people are more likely to buy your work or like, I almost think maybe this is sort of part of like a, like an Americana type of a aesthetic um, and interest to people who are interested in, in, interested in like the world of Americana art. Um, Are there places where like your work might be more prominent and prevalent in terms of like people having an interest in buying it? Absolutely. Uh, Alabama loves me. I've been in two museums there. Oh. Texas, I'm really popular. And California. California, I I would say a third of my uh, packages I mail are to California. Wow. But I, I've sold things all over the world. I would say 80% is um, the, the southern region of, of America. But that's because I do shows around here. I don't, I'm not... I'm not too keen on, you know, traveling 2,000 miles with a, a van full of art to a show I've never been to. I'm getting more adventurous, but um, having a farm and, you know, property, I live by myself. It's, it's hard for me to get away for, you know, seven days. You know, most artists historically and just 
as kind of like a general rule of principle, like live very hand to mouth. Like it is not the most lucrative or the easiest way of living to be an artist. You know, I, I talk to people all the time on here and I think to myself, like you should be <laughs> world famous and wealthy. And like what I think you do is so incredible. Are, are you able to sustain yourself um, and live comfortably off of your work or do you have to supplement it with any sort of like traditional types of jobs? I've been a full-time artist for seven years now. Wow. I've been preparing because I, I wanted to just be living off my artwork. So I started doing all these art markets and saving money. And um, I bought a foreclosure in the country four years ago. I got a five-year loan. And um, that enabled me to really focus and not just make pieces that sell instantly, like my jackalope, to focus on bigger work. And, you know, pieces that really tell stories, which was really, really wonderful for me to be able to step away from all the production and things I know, you know, of course, everyone wants a pink bunny with a unicorn horn. It was, it was a chance for me to really kind of develop my, my voice as an artist. But if I hadn't, if I, if I'd still been living in New Orleans, my quality of life would not be great, but I'm, I'm self-sustained, which is, it's, it's amazing. And, And COVID COVID really amped up my online business and it was, it was just amazing to me. I mean, every week when people are like, what do you have available? And I say, Oh, I only have three jackalopes right now. And you know, they're selling. It it was, it was a huge shock that I didn't need galleries. I didn't need shows that just my, my small Instagram following. Thank you guys. I love you guys so much. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. It's, it shocks me every day. Every day I'm amazed. I just got back from vacation. Yeah. Like, like who is this person? What is this life? And I'm like, oh, wait, you created this. <laughs> but my expenses are low. I live in the middle of nowhere. My mortgage is almost paid off. All my cars are paid off. You know, I've never bought a new car. I, I drive a, a 56 Cadillac and a 2001 Chevy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about where you live. So other than it being sort of advantageous to, um, you know, making ends meet, I'm fascinated. Like I am very lucky that I I get to drive all over the place and I get to travel many places internationally and meet people in different ways of life. And I'm like so appreciative of when people get to share their place with me. And people are so proud all over the world of, where they live. And that gets me excited. Um, you know, in preparing for this episode, I was going through your Instagram and I'm looking at your pond and I'm just like, Oh my God, that looks so beautiful. What, what do you love, uh, about living in Mississippi? Well, I'm secluded, which is probably my favorite part. I mean, I can walk outside wearing whatever I want, doing whatever I want. I'm able to grow my own food. I'm able to give my animals a ton of freedom so they're happy. I'm able to experience three different environments um, on my my small five acres. I have a swamp in the back. I have a little pond. I have a big garden and some prairie grass in the front of the property. I have space for people to come visit. They can come camp out on my, I have a school bus conversion. Oh. They can come stay on. It's, it's wonderful. And I love, I love the seasons, but it's not too cold and it's not too hot. Do you ever like Airbnb that bus? I've thought about it, but I just, so I'm like, oh yeah, I should totally rent this out. I should do retreats. And then when the retreats are coming up, I'm like, oh, you're booked May 15th. And I'm like, oh my God, people are coming here. Oh, I, I have to like get out of art mode and, you know, bake a pie and <laughs> make sure the bus has clean sheets. So I, I really like being, al- I really like being alone. So it's not really an option for me. I wish I was more social, but I really, I really like living alone in the middle of nowhere with my dogs and cats and chickens and ducks. Oh. 
I understand it. This this podcast is the most social thing about me. So like I <laughs> I understand it. Um so I, you were saying that the business online is very good. Does it does it ever make sense to have a shop like a brick and mortar type of shop? I don't think so. Maybe someday, but not right now. I can't even keep things up online, like through my Instagram. Like they pretty much sell instantly, like within a day or two. It's amazing. I tried using like a platform where, you know, you you take photos and you upload them. Then you write a description like, you know, this jackalope is magical and cotton candy colored and, you know, write a whole little thing about it. But um, I don't even have time to do that. They just sell. I don't understand it. I'm so grateful for it. It's just Instagram. It really is. I, I owe I owe the last three years of my life to my Instagram followers. Yeah, it is very interesting. I've said this before on here, but like, I've got a real love hate relationship with it. Like, I'm just bad at social media. Um. I'm not like a particularly like cool looking person. So I'm not going to get people following me because like I look like some, you know, beautiful person on a beach somewhere or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that to be self-deprecating. It's just the reality that like I'm not great at social media. But at the same time, I've been able to connect with people all over the world and have these incredible conversations just through messaging them. And it's like honestly like my primary form of research now, like how am I going to find out about wow. Megan, about Bunny? <laughs> like I'm going through your Instagram <laughs> and I'm like finding all these stories that like I might be able to pull more information out of in conversations. It is a, it's a weird world to navigate, but it is sort of like kind of impossible to avoid in 2021. It really is. It's such a useful tool. Yeah, it's weird. Especially being rural like I am. It's like my social like I can get on Instagram for 20 minutes and I feel like in touch with the world. Like, oh, okay. You know, I know who Billie Eilish is. <laughs> Without Instagram, I would I would just be here in the dark because I don't really watch TV. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how our lives have changed when you look at 10 years ago, how we were interacting and how you would, you know, discover a new business or a clothing line. Now we have these tools but just like any tool, I mean, they can be turned against you. You know, they can become a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I was thinking when you mentioned <laughs> Billie Eilish, have you ever had, uh, I don't know, famous, like a, a famous person reach out to you to buy one? No, no, I haven't actually. That might be coming. That would be interesting. <laughs> the gallery um, I'm with in New Orleans, Mortal Machine Gallery, They've had celebrities buy pieces, but um, I don't think they bought any of mine. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to think about certain celebrities and what type of work they would want done. <laughs> like, I don't know. This is stupid. And now I'm going off the rails. But the first person that comes to mind is like Donald Trump. Like, what would, what kind of, a, what work would he have done? Like, what would he be ordering? Uh, that would probably, oh God. probably a be a golfing squirrel. <laughs> yeah. And I've made some of those. Have you? I've had, I've had customers, I've had customers uh, request them and making the little tiny, so I make all my own props. I sew all my own clothes, which I hate sewing, but I mean, you can't just go buy clothes for a squirrel. Right. And <laughs> even if you did, you know, he's frozen in position. So like you can't put a jacket on a squirrel, even if it's a Ken doll jacket. It's not going to fit that squirrel. So you have to deconstruct garments to put on, you know, the forms. So I do all my own sewing, but yeah, making a little tiny golf bag and little clubs out of clay and painting them. So much fun. So much fun. It's, It's the whole process. It's not just taxidermy. It's creating a story, making a little hat out of cardboard and then covering it with tweed. Mounting him and, you know, putting him on AstroTurf and giving him the little hand-painted flag. Like, oh, he's at the ninth hole. He's almost done. (laughs) Have you ever said no to somebody? Oh, yeah. I have. Um, 
sometimes it's just not something that I am interested in doing, but I can usually recommend someone who is more suited to that kind of work. I usually say no about things like, you know, skull mounts or giant animals. I don't really enjoy working with large animals. I've, I've done a wild boar that weighed as much as I do, you know, Whoa. 150 pounds. It was, exhausting and it's just not something that I really enjoy. I like working with smaller things. They're easier to manipulate into fun poses instead of just, you know, the traditional like wild boar sitting down. In my studio, my studio is, you know, pretty small. It's like 20 by 20. So I only have so much space. If we're if you're working with something small, say a squirrel, how many hours goes into that before there's a finished product? say for just the squirrel without his outfit probably two and a half but I can I mean I can just go on like a bender when it comes to what the squirrel is going to be doing I mean I could build a little castle for him like I did two squirrels uh doing a pas de deux and just their costumes alone I think took like four hours and then I mounted the, the squirrels doing the traditional ballet dance um it was like on a small metal box that I put a 12 volt motor in that spins oh. and I, I mounted them on it. So when you push a button, the scrolls slowly turn around. That way you can see all the glory of, you know, the costumes and their positioning. I wish I would have added music to that piece. I, I, that's, that's the next thing I need to figure out. I could make my taxidermy move. Now it needs to make noise. Whoa. <laughs> Coming soon. Coming from Bunny Lane. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So how, um, if, if people are hearing you for the first time and now they're interested, how can they discover more? Where can we send them? I would send them to my Instagram page. It is at bunny underscore lane underscore. So at B-U-N-N-Y underscore L-A-N-E underscore. Awesome. And everyone listening, you know, whatever podcast application you're listening to this in, I'll have a link directly to that in your player. So just go to the notes and you can click on the hyperlink and you'll get there. Um, this was fascinating. Thank you for the time and thank you for letting me share your story. Uh, it's always an honor. I am very fortunate that I get to do this and to make these cool connections with people that otherwise I probably would never be talking to. So, uh, you know, it's a real pleasure. So thank you. It's an honor. Thank you so much. And if you're ever down this way or you decide you just, I'm, a, I'm an hour north of New Orleans. So if you ever want to come camp out in the bus for three days, that's my limit. <laughs> but you're more than welcome to come stay and, you know, experience the farm and see the studio and the ponds and, there's a really great rope swing down the road. That would be yeah. wonderful. I, I, you're only the second Mississippian, I guess is the word, to have been on this yeah. podcast. So now I have two connections. Um, so I might take you up on that. So thank you. You should. You should. I mean, I'm an hour from New Orleans and my property is, is gonzo. It's not like you're in Mississippi. You're you're at my property. Mm. It's, you're very aware of that wherever you are on the property. It's not like anywhere you've ever been before. It's it's like a whole own thing. Uh, it's like it's just like funny land. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode two hundred and twenty-five of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Megan, uh, for phoning in from Mississippi. It was great to talk to you. Thanks to Ricky also for, you know, kind of uh, unintentionally forming this link to where I found out about Megan. And hey, Voyagers, thank you, all of you. As always, my life has been enriched by this silly little podcast it has exposed me to people that I am utterly fascinated by. It has put me in places I never would have been without this. So you're probably like, 
dude, I've heard you say this 10,000 times at this point. I don't care. I feel lucky and I feel grateful. And so I'm going to keep saying it. So thank you, everybody. Lots of cool stuff coming very soon. So please stay tuned. And as always, please take care of each other. I'll catch you very soon. Peace. Thank you.